You can turn over to the Gospel of John this morning. And please be praying for our ministry over at Brookdale, the convalescent home. There's a home over there in Rabbit City on Woodside. We have a service there this afternoon at 2 o'clock. And we had a wonderful time in God's Word yesterday. Um, we had about 15, 16 people come out for our Bible study. We're going taking them through the Book of Joy, the epistle to the Philippians. And so they're really enjoying that. And I had a wonderful time to talk to an individual afterwards who is 90 years old. Her name is Pat. And I pray that you pray for her salvation. Um, she's been in the Catholic Church the whole time. <laughs> And yet she understands, she seems to understand that it's not the way to go. And so she was sharing with me, I was kind of tiptoeing around the subject, and she just came out and said, well, I don't agree with anything I was, I was taught. And I thought, oh, that's good. She goes, frankly, I don't see it in the Bible. I'm like, that's even better. So we had a good long talk, but I pray, I, I went back over after I left, came back to the church, got some of Mike's tracks from our conference last week and took them back to her and she was actually sitting in the lobby when I got there studying the outline that I gave her uh, for the message. And so God's doing something there. Can you imagine being 90 and uh, just finally putting the pieces of the puzzle together? But we pray for her salvation. But this morning, as we turn to God's Word, we want to look at uh, just a, a couple verses here. Remember, we're in the introduction to this book, you could say, epilogue. Uh, John deals with all the theological stuff almost up front, and then he gets into more of the conversational story things that go on in Jesus' life from 19 of chapter 1 through the end of the book. But we know that this, this letter was written by John, this gospel was written by John, because he wanted people to know, to know that they can have salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. And so we, we read this with that intention to come to a better understanding of our walk, our relationship with God. Now, we've looked at, so far, his relationship to God in all things in verses 1 to 5. And then we, last week, we can, or a couple of weeks ago, we concluded our second point, his reason for coming into the world. And we said it was prepared by John the Baptist. It was preached to his own people when it was presented. And then Ken taught on John the Baptist uh, two Sundays ago, or was it last two Sundays ago, and uh, taught on John the Baptist and gave you some background on him, which we're grateful for. And then we looked actually at John 14. So if you could stand with me, I'm going to read just a couple verses here, John 14 through 18, and stand in honor of God's word. John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd bless it to our hearts as we study it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Suppose you had an opportunity to share with a friend or a relative or someone you met on the street that didn't know Christ and um, you wanted to share Christ with them, and the response was, you know what, I'm pretty happy the way I am. Why do I need to add another day to do something else in my life, like going to church on Sunday mornings? I just don't need that. Uh, and if they said to you, why should I believe in Jesus? What would you say? What would you say to them? There are many different ways you could approach that question. Uh, it would seem that anyone who gave such an answer really has no idea of their situation, of the impending judgment as they stand before the judge of the universe, the holy God, their creator one day. They don't realize that. They don't realize that they're only one breath away from eternal condemnation if they don't know Christ. And yet they think everything is going well. <laughs> There's no need to be reconciled with a holy God. 
And the reason is because they have no idea of the magnitude of their own sin. They have no idea of the magnitude of their own guilt before a holy God. Because God is a just God. He has to deal with sin. He can't look the other way. And so we need to explore these issues. And when you ask that question here, John really asks this question over and over throughout the book. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? And John works overtime trying to prove to us, trying to give us evidences that he is the Son of God, the Savior who has come to redeem us, to purchase us, to forgive our sin. He is the one who claimed to be, and John presents him in this gospel. And so it would be extremely foolish not to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's not something you want to toy around with. But I think, really, you should believe in Jesus because of a couple things, and we'll go over those this morning. He's greater than all the prophets. He provides abundant grace. He is greater than Moses in the law. And fourthly, he is God's ultimate revelation to us. If you oversee the revelation of Jesus Christ, you overlook it, there's, there's no more revelation to be had. And so in verse 14, he says, We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. We talked about this last week. I find it interesting in another letter of John's, 1 John 3, 2, he writes this, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. In other words, we have something to look forward to. And then he says, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's an exciting day when we are like our Lord, when we see our Lord face to face. So the text has practical value, not just for pointing others to Christ, but also to remind us that one day we will be transformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We talked about this word glory last week, and we went to, uh, or a couple weeks ago, and we looked, looked at Exodus 33, where Moses is asking to see the, the glory of God, and he, he writes in verse 19, I myself, God is saying this, will make my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And then God explains to Moses, you know what, you can't really see my glory because if you did, you'd be incinerated <laughs> because it's so great. It's so incredible. And he says in verses 6 and 7 of, Mo of uh, Exodus 34, then the Lord passed in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, then it says this, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You say, well, I'm guilty. How do I deal with my guilt? You have to come to Christ, my friend. There's no other way to deal with your guilt. Joining a church doesn't deal with your guilt. Getting baptized doesn't deal with your guilt. Singing hymns or memorizing scripture or reading the Bible doesn't deal with your guilt. The only one way that you can have your guilt before a holy God dealt with is to come to the cross, to come to Jesus Christ, to acknowledge what he has done for you and stop trying to do things to make yourself look good in front of a holy God because that won't work. That's a dead-end street. Then he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So Moses asked to see God's glory, and God responds by saying, here's my glory. Here are some of my attributes, my sovereign attributes, my grace, my compassion, my truth. That's what the glory of God is. It's who God is. That's what makes him glorious. And so back to our question, John wants us to see that in Jesus, we can see God's abundant grace. We can see God's incredible goodness, even more so than what Moses saw it. 
Because Jesus is God's ultimate revelation to us. So if you look at your, your outline there, you should believe in Jesus Christ, I would put, as Lord and Savior, because he is greater than all the prophets. He addresses this right there in our text in verse 15. He says, John, who was the last Old Testament prophet, bore witness about him and cried out. Look at what John says. This was he, speaking of Christ, of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. John was older than than Jesus by age. He was born before Jesus. But he's saying, wait, he is greater than me. Because he was before me. Even though Jesus was born after John, John acknowledges God is what? Eternal. Don't ever believe that when Jesus was born, that's when Jesus' existence began. Some people want you to believe that. That's not true. If that were true, he couldn't be God. Because God is an eternal being that transcends time, transcends matter and time and space, everything. And so when Jesus came to earth, as we know at the incarnation, what John is saying is, you know what, you should believe in him as eternal God because he is greater than all the prophets that came before him. You see his greatness proclaimed there in verse 15 in terms of his preeminence. He's he's preferred before me, John says. He was before me. Not only his preeminence, but his preexistence. Even though John was six months older. And so when we look at that, he who comes after me has a higher rank than me because he existed before me. He really wants us to understand that one translator translated it this, this way. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me, he was first with respect to me, is what John is, is saying. And by that first part of that declaration, John was really dispelling the, the common, everyday cultural view that an older man had greater honor than the younger one. We hold that still today. I know my grandkids, when they speak to adults, They address them as ma'am and sir. Why? Because they're older. They've built that into their character. And so he's saying that Jesus is the greater one. But what does he mean by the last phrase? Because he was first with respect to me. It's, It's unlikely that John the Baptist was clear from the outset of Jesus' eternal existence as the word. Maybe he was, but I mean, it took the disciples until after the resurrection for all the fog in their heads to clear out. (laughs) And then they finally understood the truth that, wait a minute, oh wait, this guy, Jesus, is God. They finally got it. And so it, it may be that John the Baptist meant, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was always greater than I. But one commentator explains the evangelist may have introduced a note of ambiguity into the way he has reported John's words so that his readers will recognize that John spoke better than he knew. In other words, this was a supernatural understanding that that John was having. He just didn't conclude this on his own. And you, you remember later on in the Gospel, both Caiaphas and Pilate, it says, spoke Better than they knew. They said things that were true about God. That God clearly showed them. And so the Apostle John wants us to see that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist and all the other prophets put together. Now whether John the Baptist fully recognized it or not, Jesus is the eternal word. Jesus said that there's none greater than John the Baptist in Matthew 11.11. So here's the greatest one saying, no, there is one that is greater than me. So if John John himself testified 
basically that Jesus was greater than he, and if John's words about Jesus may be taken to the point of his pre-existence, then, then Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Why should you believe in Christ? Because he is greater than all the prophets that came before. Secondly, you should believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because he provides abundant grace for all who believe in him. Abundant grace. Look at verse 16. It says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What is grace? Grace, we've defined this many times. You can probably recite it in your sleep by this point. Grace is God's what? Unmerited favor. It's something God gives us as his children that we do not deserve. We don't deserve blessing from God. We deserve what? As sinners, we deserve judgment. But when we turn to Christ and we repent of our sins and we say, yes, God, I believe that Jesus lived here on earth. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that on the third day he rose from the the dead. And I believe that if I cry out to you and ask for forgiveness through the work of Christ, you will answer and you will make me one of your children as promised in your word. That's all grace. God doesn't, des- we don't deserve to be Christians. We have to strike that from our, our hearts and our minds. There's nothing worthy in and of ourselves that God looks down from heaven and says, oh, I've got to save that person. I need that player on my team. No. God says, no, I'll give you something you don't deserve. You deserve wrath. You, de- you deserve divine punishment for all of eternity because of sin. But you know what? I'm going to give you unmerited favor. I'm going to give you something you can't work for. And that's different than God's mercy, is it not? What is God's mercy? God's mercy, think of it this way, is is God withholding from us what we do deserve. God's grace is giving us something we don't deserve. God's mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve wrath we deserve punishment we deserve condemnation for all of eternity but god doesn't give us that why because we have trusted in christ because of our position in his son the lord jesus christ and he says there that for for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace it's it's interesting that jesus is also not just full of full of grace, but he's also full of truth. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul wrote, for in him all the fullness, listen, of deity dwells in bodily form. See, Jesus wasn't just a a junior God while he was here on earth. He was God. Literally, in every way. And yet he had constrained himself to a human body even while he was God. Now, some people believe, well, that human body was kind of like it was, a, uh, it was a, a glorified body like Adam had. No, it wasn't. It was a body just like you and I have. If you cut Jesus' finger, he would bleed. In scriptures, throughout the gospel, we see, and we'll see as we go through John further on, that, you know what, Jesus had personality, Jesus had feelings. Jesus had emotions. Jesus had a physical body that endured suffering, that sweat, that got hungry, that grew toilsome under the pressure he was facing. And yet, he still was God in every way. They're not mixed. They're two distinct natures kind of in one. (laughs) Just because he became a man, he didn't become any less God. And yet, just because he was God, he was not any less a man. And that's what people struggle with when it comes to Jesus suffering on the cross and everything. People, I've heard people say, well, he was God. He knew what was going to happen anyway. But that didn't take away the pain and the suffering. He had a human body just like we did. He felt every, everything. And it must have even been magnified because he knew it was coming 
It didn't catch him by surprise because he's God. On the other hand, he knew everything. And the scriptures say, in him was the fullness of the deity dwelling in bodily form. The very fullness of God is in Christ Jesus. And when we receive Christ by trusting in him, verse 12 says we become children of God, and thus we become heirs to all of the riches of heaven. Read Ephesians chapter 1 to see what our inheritance is. It's amazing. J.C. Ryle explains verse 16. He says, All who believe in Jesus have received an abundant supply of all that our souls need out of the full store that resides in Him for His people. It is from Christ and Christ alone that all of our spiritual wants have been supplied. That's why we teach that we are sufficient in who? In Christ. You don't need anything else besides Christ. As a matter of fact, you can have everything else and not have Christ and you'd be lost. It wouldn't work for you. But you can have Christ and nothing else. Christ and Christ what? Alone. Christ and Christ alone. We have all of our spiritual needs, our desires met, and have been supplied through him. And when he says grace upon grace, there's a lot of different things. He uses a preposition there, ante, in the original Greek that means that one thing is replaced by another or put in the place of another. And so some people think, well, the grace, the first grace may refer to God giving the law through Moses and it's grace and truth that were realized through Christ, but at least he, he reached out to his people and said, hey, look, here's the law. But the law wasn't really that gracious when you think about it. And we're so glad to be delivered from the law, are we not? And brought to grace. Grace came through Christ. He displays his glory through Christ who dispenses God's grace. We don't need to do what the Catholic Church teaches and go to Mary for grace. Mary has no grace to dispense. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really the evidence of his deity. This is what John is trying to prove here. He's full of grace and truth. He's full of it in verse 16. And of his fullness we all have received, meaning those who have trusted in Christ. He illustrates it by saying in the Greek, Greek, uh, in the Greek, grace after grace, or grace in the place of grace. It means there's a non-diminishing supply, eternal supply of grace upon grace. After the grace that you're experiencing now is moved on, guess what? There's more coming. It just never stops. I remember going over to, by the Fioli Center, they have that big uh, well, the, the Calaveras Pond or whatever they call it, the big uh, reflection pool there, and you can walk up and you see the water just coming out, coming out. It's just amazing. And it just never stops. Never stops, just continues, continues to flow. That's how God's grace is. It doesn't stop. That's why Paul says in in Romans 5, in this grace we stand. In God's grace we stand. That's why we live in God's grace. That's where we exist in God's grace. Grace comes constantly to us because we have believed the truth of what? The gospel. And we don't receive some small amounts of grace. God doesn't say, well, here's just a little bit. Come back tomorrow for tomorrow for some more grace. No. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, who was concerned when he was dealt a thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, it was something that bothered him in his spiritual walk. And he asked to be have it removed. He went to God three times, and God said, you know what? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. Why? Because it's never ending, beloved. And you know what? Because we know Christ, we read in Hebrews that now we can come as God's children to what? To the throne of grace. We have access to, the, to our, our Savior, to our God, 
because of the work of Christ. There's a never-diminishing supply for every need that you will ever have in Christ. So John says, how do we know he's God? Because he is the, we are, the, the, we are living in the realm of his grace. And his grace just keeps on being poured out over us, over us more and more out in our lives. It doesn't stop. And when you add in the idea of Jesus' fullness, it's an exhaustible, inexhaustible supply. John Calvin applies this in verse 16. He says, first it shows that while we're all spiritually destitute, the abundance that exists in Christ is intended to supply our deficiency to relieve our poverty, to satisfy our hunger and thirst. Are you hungry today? Are you thirsty today for truth? Go to Christ. Secondly, he says, if we depart from Christ, if you don't go to that source of grace, John Calvin says, it is in vain for us to seek a single drop of happiness or grace elsewhere because you're not going to find it the world can never give us the lasting joy the lasting satisfaction that we find in christ never and yet so many within the church who are naming the name of christ where do they go first and foremost for that happiness and that joy they go to the world and the things of the world and they think somehow they can merge their Christian life with the things of the world and everything's going to be okay. No, it won't be. That's why God calls us out of the world. He calls us a what? Peculiar people. That's a compliment. We don't take it as such today. If I called you peculiar, you'd say, wow, what's your problem? And I would feel the same way if you called me peculiar. Because that, that, that kind of denotes something strange. Something's wrong with that person. But that's exactly what God says we should be in this world. We should be peculiar. We should stand out like a sore thumb. When people look at us, they should say, what is, what is going on with you, pal? You don't, you're not like everybody else. There's something different about you. And that's when we have the opportunity to what? Say, yes, it is Christ in me. The hope of glory So he says it shows we're all spiritually destitute. It shows that if we go anywhere else to find this joy or this happiness in the world, we'll never find it. And then thirdly, Calvin says, we have no reason to fear lacking anything if we draw on Christ's fullness because he is a truth inexhaustibly a fountain, a truly inexhaustible fountain. And John wants to make this plain to us all. All who believe in Christ have received grace upon grace. See, it's another thing to say, yeah, Christ satisfies our every need. And we know He's fullness and grace and overabundant joy, all that stuff. But you know what? It's quite another thing to really experience. Would you agree? We may know that in our heart, but we don't experience that in our lives sometimes. It's so easy when problems hit us to turn to other things other than Christ for relief. I hear people all the time come and say, hey, I got this problem with this. I got this. You know a good book I could read? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's called the Bible. <laughs> now, I'm not putting down other resources, but at the same time, we need to go to the source of truth who's willing and ready to help us. Even many Christians turn to worldly techniques. Use drugs, alcohol to reduce stress. Hear it all the time. I just had to come home, just have a drink to calm myself down. Wow, really? But here's Jesus' prescription for peace. Here's Jesus' prescription for calmness in a troubled world. Look at, at John 16, 33. John 16, verse 33. This is 
what, what the Lord says. Hey, if you're having a bad day, you need something to give you a little peace. John 16.33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, speaking to his disciples, that in me, in Christ, you may have peace. If you remain in me, you will have peace. And then he says, he states the fact, in the world you will have tribulation. He doesn't say that because you're in me, it's going to be just a, a bucket of roses and everything's fine. Put a pasty little Jesus smiles on your face and you know, go on with life. No, he says, you know what? In the world you're going to have tribulation. Why? Back to the fact you're peculiar. You stand out like a sore thumb. You're not complying. You're not going with the flow. Why? Because the Bible tells you something different. The Bible says, no, you go in this direction as one of my followers. And Jesus says, you will have tribulation. And I love what he says at the end of verse 33, but take heart. I spoke to the men yesterday about having a heart that finishes. We, we need to have hearts that pursue Christ. We're not trusting in some prayer we prayed when we were three. We haven't seen Jesus do anything in our life since then, but boy, we come to church every week, and we're a Christian, oh yeah. I would beg to differ. Our testimony should be an ongoing testimony. It should be something that really evolves, if you want to use that word, in our Christian walk. Because I don't know about you, but God's not done with me yet. He continues to work. He continues to bring issues into my life that I've got to address. He continues to make me more like Christ. And how does he do that? Through tribulations, through trials. And yet so many times when those things enter our lives, what do we do? Oh, God, no, 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 get me out of this. I don't want to be in this trial. I don't like the way this feels. And God is saying, uh, you know what? You'll get over it. Because I'm working out my plan and my purpose in your life. And besides that, I love what he says at the end, take heart, I have overcome the world. You have nothing to fear. I'm sick and tired of Christians treating Satan like he's already won the battle. You know, they're more interested in spiritual warfare than they are in pursuing Christ. It's ridiculous. Satan holds no power over us as God's children. We don't need to fear him. And I think we need to turn our hearts back to Christ and realize that it's in him that God has given us this, this fullness. That he has already overcome the world. And because we're in Christ, guess what? We have overcome the world. That's our position. I wish it was more of our practice. But our practice will never increase until we understand our position. Reminded of the, I think it was the gentleman who went on a cruise. He thought, well, you know what? He pinched and saved and bought the ticket for the cruise. And he thought, at least I'll get, to get on the cruise ship. And he got on this cruise ship Never been on a cruise before. Spent all his money. So he got out there. He had nothing to eat. So he stayed in his room. Once in a while, we'll go out for a little walk. He'd go back to his room. He's just starving by the third, fourth day. And finally, he asked somebody, hey, give me some money. I gotta, I gotta get something to eat. And they said, What do you mean? And he's like, Well, I don't have any money. And he said, well, you're on the cruise. Then you buy a ticket. Well, yeah. He goes, well, go upstairs. The whole buffet's there for you. It's, like, it's, it's, it's included. He didn't know that. He's starving himself. See, that's what happens to Christians sometimes. They don't understand their position in Christ, so they're, they're living in a way that is starving them spiritually. They, they don't understand that they've already overcome the world. We don't have to be given to all this stuff. God has put us in Christ, and Christ has overcome the world. That's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, what? Be anxious for what? Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, there it is, Turkey Day. Had to get in there somehow today. 
Happy Thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And what? And the peace, the peace of God, the very peace that fills Christ up to the fullness, that peace, the peace of God, which he says surpasses all understanding, surpasses all comprehension. In other words, you'll have peace when you don't even understand why you have peace. Somebody says, why are you so calm in your trials? You know, I don't know. I probably should be worrying, but I'm not. Why is this? Because I have the peace of Christ. And it surpasses all comprehension. And it says that He will, the peace will guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, yeah, I tried that, but the problems didn't go away. Hello? Why do you think the problems are going to go away? God's brought problems into your life for a purpose. He wants you to have problems. Trials are good for us. Tribulations are good for us. That's when the Lord told Paul, after Paul wanted his problems to go away, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is what? Perfected in your weakness. God doesn't want us independent. He doesn't want us self sufficient he doesn't want us to have a self-ego that thinks oh i got this he wants us dependent he wants us weak he wants us in a place in life where we can only look but up and say god please help me and so many times just the opposite happens we think, ah, I've been a Christian long enough, I can handle this. See, the key to peace is not the absence of problems. The key to peace is the presence of the all-sufficient grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? If you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're here today, or you're listening through the live stream or on the podcast, whatever you are, if you don't have the peace of Christ in your life, it's because you don't understand the sufficient grace of Christ. Well, thirdly, not only does he say that he's greater than all the prophets and that he provides abundant grace for all who believe in him, but thirdly, he says you should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because he is greater than Moses in the law. So he kind of breaks it down even more in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Just kind of brings him into this, this dialogue here. And grace and truth come through who? Jesus Christ. I mean, why does John introduce the law and introduce Moses here? Well, one thing is because in Exodus 34, when God called Moses back to Mount Sinai to reveal his glory to him, he instructed him to cut out two stone tablets like the former ones that he had broken in anger, if you remember, when he went down the mountain and found the people worshiping in a golden calf in, in Exodus 34. And so God reissued the law on that occasion of showing Moses his glory. And the law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. What does it do? It manifested God's grace and truth. If that passage is the backdrop for these verses here in verse 17, then he's showing us that as great as the law and as great as Moses were, someone who embodies the grace and truth that now dwells, tabernacles in us as his children is even greater. One commentator points out, rather than offend the gospel's Jewish audience, this verse is designed to draw it in. If you want an even more gracious demonstration of God's covenantal love and faithfulness, the evangelist tells his readers, guess where it's found? It's found in Christ. It's not found in just keeping more of the law. So he's really saying here to his readers and to his audience, he says, if you thought that God's gift of the law through Moses was a great thing. And it was, by the way. It showed them the truth of God. It pointed them in the right direction. The fact that they couldn't keep the law 
The law wasn't meant to save them. The law was meant to show that they were inadequate to save themselves. If you thought that was good, guess what? John is saying he has given us a greater gift now through Jesus Christ. And he's drawing a contrast here between the inferiority of the law and the superiority of Christ. Leon Morris points out in his commentary, the contrast of the Christian way with the Jewish and the function of Moses as subordinate to and pointing forward to the Christ is a recurring theme in the Gospel of John. J.C. Ryle put it this way, By Moses was the law given, the moral law, full of high and holy demands and of stern threatenings against disobedience, the ceremonial law full of burdensome sacrifices and ordinances and ceremonies, which never healed the worshiper's conscience, and at best were only shadows of good things to come. By Christ, on the other hand, grace and truth came. Grace by the full manifestation of God's plan of salvation and the offer of complete part to every soul that believes in Jesus and truth by the unveiled exhibition of Christ himself as the true sacrifice, the true priest, and the true atonement for sin. Augustine made a comment on this verse and he said this, the law threatened, not helped. The law commanded, not healed. The law uh, not took away our feebleness, but it made ready for the physician who was to come with grace and truth. I mean, we we said this before, but John uses Jesus' human name, Jesus, or his Sometimes he uses his designation as the Christ or the Messiah. But he uses Jesus 237 times. More than any other gospel. More, really, than a quarter of all of the New Testament combined. He also uses Christ more than any other gospel. Although, what's interesting, he only uses Jesus Christ in one phrase together, those two words together, one other time. 17.3. In, in, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, John's making clear here. He says, Jesus Christ. And then over in 17.3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Interesting. John was making it clear that the Word who was in the beginning God, the Word who was God, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us is none other than, guess who? Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. God's grace and truth reached their apex, you could say, at the cross. His truth demanded that the penalty for sin be fully paid His grace provided Jesus, the eternal Son of God, as that payment for sin for all who believe in Him, who put their trust and faith in Him. So make sure that you have received God's gift of eternal life by trusting in Christ Jesus as your your payment for sin, as your sin bearer. So John says that you should believe in Jesus because he's greater than all the prophets, including John the Baptist, by the way. You should believe in him because he provides abundant grace for all who believe. And you should also believe in him because he's greater than Moses and the law. The last point here in our outline is you should believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because he is God's ultimate revelation to us. And look at what he says in verse 18. He says, no one has seen God at any time. And yet we have people, even within the church, in general, not this church necessarily, but the church at large, who are saying all the time they see God. 
And yet the Bible says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I mean, this this verse seems to come out of nowhere at first. Why is John abruptly bringing up the fact that no one has seen God? Well, there's a couple reasons here. First, if Exodus 33 and 34 is the backdrop of these verses, which I believe it is, when Moses there asked God to show him his glory, God responded how? Hey, you know what? If you actually did see me in all my glory, you wouldn't live. You don't know what you're asking for, Moses. So he didn't answer that request. He put him in the cleft of the rock and hid him from him. And still, it was overwhelming to Moses even to see the backside of his glory. And then in verse 18, it wraps up with this this prologue by tying back to verse 1. Jesus is the Word, who is the only Son of God, who is with God. In the bosom of the Father, verse 18. He has explained him to us. See, we can't know the invisible God unless he reveals himself to us. Which he has done where? In his word. And through Christ. You may wonder why Exodus 24.10 says that the leaders of Israel saw God and Isaiah saw God. And yet God himself says that no one can see him and live. John says, no one has seen God at any time. And Paul says that no man has seen or can see God in 1 Timothy 6.16. The answer is simply this, that no one has seen the essence of God in his unmitigated glory. No one has seen that. Those who got a vision of God either saw Christ in his pre-incarnate glory, or they had an obscured vision of of glory around God's throne. Almost always those who got such a limited vision of God were, listen, terrified. They were terrified by the experience. But now it says that Jesus has revealed God to us, especially his abundant grace and his abundant truth. When you read there, that he has made us known, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made us known. Some of the translations read the only begotten Son rather than the only begotten God. The earliest, best manuscripts read the only begotten God. It's a unique phrase, it's more difficult to explain, but I, I think it's, it's then the only begotten Son. But it affirms Jesus as God. And so the word there explains it it to us. He he has made him known to us. Uh, It's really the idea, exegete, it's the idea where we get our word uh, when we preach exegetically from the scriptures, we take truths out of the scriptures, we explain them. We don't read our thoughts into the, the scriptures. So the only way that you can know the Father is through Jesus, his Son. As a matter of fact, elsewhere in 1 John, Jesus clearly says in chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, whoever denies the Son, guess what? He does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And also in John 5.23, Jesus says, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. A lot of our cults today deny the deity of Christ. And you say, well, don't they mean well? They may mean well all day long. That doesn't change the fact. They're lost in their sins and going to hell because they're not teaching that Jesus is God. It also means that the insider movement, which has changed the terms father and son because they are offensive to Muslims, has perverted the core of the gospel. I mean, it's fine to explain what those terms mean, but it's not fine to change the terms that God has used to reveal himself to his son. And so John wants us to know Christ, the son of God. 
so that we will believe in him, so that we will have eternal life, so that we will have our sins paid for, taken care of. Well, John says very clearly, why should you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because he's greater than all the prophets. He's abundant. He's provided abundant grace for all who trust in him. He's greater than Moses in the law, and he's God's ultimate and final, really, revelation of himself to us. And I would say, if you turn away from faith in Christ, you are honestly, you are rejecting the witness that God has given concerning his son, and there's no hope for you. There's no hope for anyone who rejects Christ. There's no other way to come to God. If you believe, then you can say, along with John in 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Father, we thank You this morning that You have been able to make this message plain and clear. And Lord, there's so many reasons for us to put our faith, our trust in Christ. I pray that all who are gathered here today have done so. And if they haven't, Lord, that you would not allow them to rest until they rest in Christ. Father, that you would turn their hearts from their sin and turn them to the Savior. Help them to turn, repent from their sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness from that sin. Lord, we all sin. We're all sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Lord, we thank you that there is a truth that when we cry out from the depths of our heart, the depths of our needs, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, that you will save us according to your word, according to the promises in your word. And that salvation is for all eternity. It doesn't, it's not based on our performance. It's not based on how many times we go to church or how many times we're baptized or take communion. It's based on your word, on your promise to us that you have given us, if we know the Son, we will have eternal life. Not temporary life, eternal life. And for that, we are eternally grateful to you. And so, Father, we pray as believers that we would be willing to take this message of the gospel. And yeah, that calls being a little peculiar at times and standing out in a world that's going one direction. But Lord, I pray that we would stand up for the things of God, and that we would stand out with the gospel. And Lord, that you would use us as a church, that you would use us as individuals to take this glorious good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world, especially here in the peninsula, here in the Bay Area. People need to hear Christ. They need to see Christ in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would just bless our time as we close with a song. Bless our time of fellowship across the way. And Lord, we thank you for all the blessings in our lives and we pray that everyone has a wonderful thanksgiving with family and friends if they're traveling keep them safe lord we look to you for all these things and are eternally grateful we pray this in jesus precious name all god's people said amen amen let's stand together we'll close with one last song